Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We're going to start a new series today. We just, we just finished Colossians last week, right? It was like 21 weeks of walking through the book of Colossians section by section, looking at how great Jesus is, how he's greater than anything we could come up with, and then we finished it last week with Paul's petition that, we would, that, uh, that they would pray for him, that they would pray for kind of an opening to the gospel, and that he would proclaim it clearly to people. And then he listed through kind of the, his camaraderie. We talked about a lot, Colossians 3.11, saying, In Christ, all of our differences come together in unity, that we're all equal um, and it doesn't matter if you come from this place or this place or this heritage or this, or this neighborhood or this one. We're all together in Christ. And then I found it awesome. At the end of Colossians 4, Paul lists through all of these people, and it's his own living Colossians 3.11. It's his community that's all different but all equal and all together. We finished that up last week, and we're jumping into a new series because... Uh, We've started to talk about a little bit of tweak in our language. If you've been coming to DR for a long time, um, for a long time we would stand up at the beginning of service and we would say there's three things that are important to us. Um, What are they? Gospel, community, mission. mission. You're now wrong. (laughs) Okay? We're going to tweak our language a little bit. We're saying gospel, we've always said Gospel is where we start. Everything of who we are is because of who Jesus is. But that tended to become just a personal, vertical relationship with Jesus. And that is, I think, a limited view of the gospel. That's not wrong. It's just limited. And then community, to say we come together, is true. But we don't just come together to be together. We come together to grow toward Jesus, right? To walk with Jesus together. And we're, we're reaching out on mission. And so we're tweaking our language just a little bit. We're changing it to say gospel really needs to be over everything. Gospel isn't just one part of who we are. Gospel, gospel hovers over everything, every part of who we are. And then under the gospel, we worship. We worship. We have a vertical relationship with Jesus personally, but together, and we worship him. That's our first response. And then we don't just come together, but we come together to grow together. It's like we have a place to belong and also a place where we become. We're invited into a community, and we're challenged by this same community. And so we're tweaking community now to discipleship. So gospel over everything, worship, discipleship, and mission. We're going to spend the next four weeks breaking down those four words. What do we mean by the gospel? What is the gospel? We're going to talk about that today. Next week we'll talk about worship and then discipleship and then mission. These will be four weeks that kind of, uh, I don't want to say recreate or set a new foundation, but it's like we want to get a little bit clearer with who we are and who we want to become uh, as we grow in following Jesus. So today, today the question is, what is the gospel? And I want to start going back. Uh, the last time that you were in school, whether it was middle school or high school or college or anywhere, when a teacher or prof set a date for a test, 
oftentimes I would stress out a little bit about that. It didn't always turn into study for me. It was just stress and that I didn't do anything with it. But then I showed up on the day of the test, right? How, how did you feel when your teacher or your professor said, this test is going to be an open book? Like, yes! I don't have to think. All I have to do is find the answer. All I have to do is open up the book, find the answer, and put it onto the paper. Now, I struggled some in college because when a professor would throw out a question on a test, I always felt this compulsion to have a really creative answer. And sometimes we don't need really creative answers, right? Sometimes we don't need to recreate the wheel. We just have to know the answer that's there, right? So I'd, I'd get done with a question and sometimes like, well, that was a good answer, but you didn't have to do all that. You, you said a lot of stuff when you could have said this. One of my best professors in seminary was a guy who said, I'm going to give you a short answer test. Your answers have to be 25 words or less. My first attempt was 50 words. And I was like, man, I'm doing good. And I counted it up, 50 words. Like, nope. You don't need to say so much. When it comes to the gospel, I feel like sometimes we're like that. Ask somebody what the gospel is. And often there's this uh, compulsion to to have a really fancy answer, to have a really creative answer, to say, I'm so in tune spiritually that I have an answer that you've never heard before. You ask 10 people that question, what is the gospel? It's, it's likely that you're going to get 10, 10 different answers. Now, they may have kind of some of the same content in them, some of the same ideas, but you're going to get 10 different answers. So one Christian magazine did this. They kind of like went out to Christian authors and they said, hey, how would, you, how would you break down the teachings of Christianity? How would you answer the question, what is the gospel in seven words or less? And here are some of their answers, okay? Here are some of the answers. God refuses to be God without us. That's good. The gospel is to dwell in possibility. I don't know what that means. <laughs> God is love. This is no joke. Good. In Christ, God calls us all to reconciliation. Now we're, we're upping our uh, kind of grade level vocabulary. This one gets poetic. Divinely persistent, God really loves us. In Christ, God's yes defeats our no. Which is interesting, like, well, what's my no in the first place? And how, what is that yes? Christ's humanity occasions our divinity. I don't exactly know what to do with that one. Everybody gets to grow and change. That's like a kumbaya version. Like, let's, let's sit around the campfire. God was born. We can be reborn. Cool. So all these are really creative. Do they help us understand the gospel with clarity? Nope. I, I mean, to me, I'm like, I don't... Good for you. Uh, but I don't, I'm not seeing anything any more clearly. 
What is the gospel? We think we have to be creative with it. And I, it would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice if instead of trying to come up with a really good answer, if we could just open the book and say, this is the answer. This is the gospel. You don't have to create anything. Here it is with clarity. So if I want to I let you know, if you're intimidated by that question, if anybody has ever come up and asked you, like Peter says, always have a defense for somebody who asks you for the hope that's within you. If somebody would come up to you today and say, I have no idea how to answer that question. I mean, like, I know God. I know Jesus. I know him personally. I'm so thankful for what he did for me. But if somebody just came out and said, give it to me, I don't know what I would say. And I would wonder if I got done with that conversation, if I had just messed up the whole thing. If that's you, you're in good company. Okay? There's lots of people in this room who feel that way. I feel that way. Paul, at the end of Colossians, says, pray that I would basically present the gospel with clarity. Right? So Paul says, sometimes I'm at risk of not being clear. And Paul prays for clarity. We're in good company here. Today, what I hope to do is to just be able to say, what is the gospel and answer that? I want to give a definition. Like, what does that word even mean? Where does that come from? This is not a made-up word. This didn't just fall out of heaven and say, the gospel, oh, that's a good churchy word. It probably points to Jesus. This was a word that was used. So let's define it or, like, look at the definition of it. Then let's look at how the Bible how in the Bible people explain the gospel. When people were asked a question, what is going on, how did they in the New Testament say, this is the gospel? And it's a little bit different than the way that I grew up. It's a little bit different than some of the rules that we've been taught, maybe. This is what you have to say. There's, you might be caught off guard a little bit by how New Testament authors explain it. And we say, okay, how did they proclaim it? When they went out, when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and he just said, what did that look like? What did it look in the New Testament to, to proclaim, to declare, to call it out, and to like beg a response? That's the gospel. What does that look like? And then, and then what I want to do after we've finished with that is I want to take a look at what, what could our response look like? Sometimes we, we commingle the gospel with, our, with a right response to the gospel. The response to the gospel isn't the gospel, right? The gospel is just kind of there. And when we hear it, it begs a response. So we'll talk about that. But I'll give you a little bit of a clue. Part of our response as a church, what we're going to get real focused on uh, as we move forward, our response to the gospel shows up in worship and discipleship, and mission. As we respond to who Jesus is, as we respond to what God has done and is doing, worship and discipleship and mission show up in force. So let's pray, and then uh, we're going to jump into this question. Father, I thank you. Uh, I thank you that you don't want to stay distant. 
that you don't want to hide in the clouds, that you don't want to just be a mystery. While we recognize that you are beyond us, that you are beyond our ability to comprehend you, while we can never know you fully, you allow us to know you truly. And I pray that that would, that would be the case today, that you would get our attention, that you would help us to know you truly, and that you would give us clarity into who you are and what your gospel is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start today, as Justin and I were preparing for this message, a friend, um, a friend had uh, turned our attention to a sermon. There's all kinds of all kinds of resources when you go into preparing a message called "What is the Gospel?" If you type that question into Amazon, you get about six thousand hits. 6,000 resources, books and T-shirts and pencil holders and all kinds of stuff that have gospel at the heart of it, right? This friend pointed us in the direction of a sermon that was so good in helping just get down right, right clear to the heart of the gospel. And so if you, if you don't know Sky Jathani, this author and speaker, if you've never read him I highly, highly, highly encourage you to get to know him and his writings. His book, With, is fantastic. It's just outstanding the way that we sometimes approach God and um, how God wants to turn it to say, I'm not looking for you to do life under me or over me or from me or for me. I want you to do life with me. And it's so good. So a lot of the stuff in this sermon... If I didn't mention that, you could probably accuse me of plagiarism and not be too far off. Okay? Most of this stuff I'm not creating. I want to try to be done coming up with creative answers. Okay? If, you, if we jump in this morning and we say, what is this word? What is the word gospel? What did it, what, what's the meaning behind it? The gospel, gospel in Jesus' day was a real word. Gospel in Jesus' day uh, was this Greek word, euangelion. Euangelion. Uh, and sometimes in the writing, they would, the E-U, it would, it would come out like E-V, which is where we get evangelical, right? Or evangelism, to like share this. So E-U means good. It's a prefix that means good. Eureka. Good, I found it. Right? Or euphemism, something that isn't really good that I can twist to make it sound good. It starts that way. Eulogy, at the end of somebody's life, people stand up and they would say good things, good reflections about them. Euphoria, this state of it's so good I can't handle it. Right? And then there's Europe. I don't, I don't know if that relates at all, but it started with EU as I was looking down through the words. So EU, EU is good. And then the other half of there, or it's not half if you're like really specific, but the other part is angelion, which is, what does that sound like? Angel, right? And the meaning of that was message or messenger. 
So angels are called God's messengers. They come up and they bring a message from God. And so this word, euangelion, was good message, or it gets translated good news. And it was used, it was used, people would go around, it was used for a specific purpose, when a new Caesar or a new king was either born or took the throne, they would go around and say, have you heard the good news? Caesar is Lord. Have you heard the good news? Caesar is Lord. And it was very specific. The, the gospel, the gospel, the euangelion, was good news that Caesar is Lord were under his rule. That's how it was used. That's the definition. This was changed just a little bit. So the gospel writers the gospel writers take this word from their culture and they say, we're going to twist this a little bit. Caesar is not our Lord. Caesar is our Lord here on earth, but higher than Caesar, higher than Caesar is where we appeal. So the writers of the New Testament started to say, this is our gospel. There is a gospel of the world This is our gospel. And if you want a clear explanation of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15 is a really good place to go to to say, how does Paul spell it out? How does Paul walk out this good message of Jesus Christ? The first four books of the New Testament are called, you know, somebody's, the gospel according to somebody, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark or according to Luke. And in 1 Corinthians 15 here, Paul spells it out. So we're going to walk through. And what I want to do is say, what did Paul think was critical as he explains the gospel? What did Paul say is at the heart of the gospel? If I have a chance to explain it to you, this, this is critical. We're going to start 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. He's setting it up. This is the gospel that I explained to you, that I preached to you, that I brought to you, and here's a reminder of what I brought. This is also what has been passed on to me, and I'm just continuing on. He says, he says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, And then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is highlighting in this first paragraph, he said, if you want to understand the gospel, Jesus died. Jesus, a real person, died. He went so far as to be buried. Like, he really died. He really died 
for our sins, the Old Testament scriptures laid out what was going to happen. And he did it. And he didn't stay dead. He rose. Jesus came back to life. And Paul says, you can ask people. There's lots of people still running around that you can ask who saw Jesus. He said, there's some who have fallen asleep. You can't ask them. They're dead now. But he says, if you want, if you want to start with the gospel, Jesus died. Jesus rose. And then Paul goes on in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul goes back and says, I want to talk more about the resurrection. I want to talk more about Jesus not being dead anymore. Rising from the dead really happens. And then Paul does this thing where he says, and it wasn't just about Jesus. It's also about us. We get pulled into this, that we start to look toward our own resurrection. We start to look at our own coming back from the dead. And there were tons of people in Paul's days, the Sadducees, who didn't believe that at all. Didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe that people would come back from the dead, that God would do that. And Paul says, that's absolutely what what God is doing. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and we are brought into it too. And without resurrection, we're still in our sins. Paul goes on in verse 21, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul says, we're all in this death thing together. We all have death written all over us. We all are living death already. Sin has come in. Sin has made a mess of us. Sin has put us to death. And this is the curse of Adam. When Adam and Eve turned away from God, when they said, we'd like to go our own way, God let them. And the the consequence of that was not just getting kicked out of the garden. That was actually a blessing. The consequence was death. The consequence was separation from God. Separation from God. If God is life, to be without God is death. To live forever in that state is this state of eternal death. God, by kicking them out of the garden, says, you don't have to live forever like that. And he sets in motion redemption. He sets in motion reconciliation. He sets the gospel in motion that says, your death is going to get replaced by Christ's death, 
who really died and didn't stay dead. He rose so that now you can also. And then, in verse 24, Paul says, Christ died, he was buried, Christ rose, he exchanges our death for his and his life for ours. And then in verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, take the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted uh, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And in a nutshell, what it's saying is Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose. There's an exchange that happens, and Jesus rules. Jesus rules. He rules now, and God will rule forever. That Jesus hands back to the Trinity, hands back to God the Father, that they get to rule over everything. After all authorities have been defeated, death being the last one, then God fully, his reign is fully felt. Jesus died, Jesus rose, an exchange happens. Jesus rules. That is Paul. That's Paul kind of walking through an explanation of the gospel. So the gospel of Matthew, at the end, with the Great Commission, when Jesus stands up after dying, after being buried, after rising, and he says, all authority has been given to me. You know what he's saying? I rule. (laughs) And he does. He's like, I'm king. I'm I'm powerful, and not just powerful, but greater than all powers. All authority has been given to me. Now, go make disciples. Go help people follow me. Go help people into my kingdom. Come in under the reign of me, Jesus says. Jesus' death in exchange for our death. Jesus' resurrection that opens the way for ours. And Jesus' authority, his lordship, his kingship. That's the gospel explained. And if you look at how the gospel is proclaimed throughout the New Testament, if you just look through Acts, Acts 2, 3, 4, 10, 13, 17, their main point, their main points that they make over and over and over again, they don't lead with heaven. They don't lead with hell. Like when you die, you get to go to a good place. Or when you die, you get to not go to a bad place. That's not where they lead. Those things are true. But it's not the most compelling thing for them. You know what's the most compelling things for them as they proclaim the gospel? Jesus' death. Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' lordship. As the forgiveness of our sins. They make the most of Jesus' resurrection and his lordship. If you just go through and you tally 
to say, okay, this one talks about this idea, this one talks about this idea, this one talks about this idea. You just go through and tally them up. The ones that show up the most are resurrection and lordship. That Jesus is alive and Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And that's consistent with 1 Corinthians 15. If we turn to Mark, which is believed to be like the earliest gospel written, right? Mark starts out, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is doing something that is very, very bold. How was the gospel used? How was that word used? Caesar is Lord. Mark says the gospel is about Jesus. The announcement is about Jesus. We pay attention to Jesus. And so if we just boiled it all down, the New Testament, I think the gospel can be described in four words. Jesus, Christ, is Lord. That's not fancy. You don't have to get creative. Jesus, meaning the man, he was born. He was one of us. He lived and he died. Jesus, that guy, we saw him. We knew him. He really lived. He was a real person. That guy, Jesus Christ, he was more than a man. He was more than a man. He was the one that the Old Testament said, one is coming, and you will hear about him. One is coming when death is wiped out. Christ, Christ is the New Testament's version of the Hebrew word Messiah, the appointed one, the chosen one. So the man, Jesus, is also Christ, is also the appointed one, is also God come down to deliver us. Jesus Christ is, 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 not was, not will be. Caesar is Lord, runs its course, right? You look at all the Caesars and you would say they were Lord. They were king. And the eternal gospel says Jesus Christ is, is ever present. He was, and he is, and he always will be. Jesus Christ is Lord. That means he's powerful. Not just powerful. He is the authority of the authorities. He's the king of the kings. Lord over all lords. There is no power that he is not over. There is no power that you can, can usurp him, can take over from him. He is the highest power. And he defeats all enemies, the last one being death itself. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that's a little intimidating at first because you start to say, I, I might be comfortable by saying Jesus Christ is my eternal best friend. Right? Jesus Christ is my older brother who came back for me and he saw so much worth in me that he would come. And like, that's true, but that's not the core. I am not the core of the gospel. You are not at the center of the gospel. The center doesn't, like, it doesn't revolve around you and me, right? 
Who does it revolve around? Jesus. It's not about God loved us so much that He came for us. The core of the gospel is God Himself. Who He is. Those things are true. Praise God. Thank God. Those things are true. But I'm not at the center. Something incredible happens to people when they go to the Grand Canyon, when they go to the Rocky Mountains, when they go to the the Alps, when they go up north to pristine lakes camping. People get dumbstruck, right? You don't go to the Grand Canyon for self-esteem. You don't go to the Grand Canyon and say, I feel better about myself now. You go to these places and you're like, whoa, this is bigger than me. And that doesn't make you feel like a worm. That doesn't make you feel like, now I'm really bummed out because it's not all about me. You're like, you see something that is amazing. You see something that is beyond you, and there's joy in that. When we say the gospel is not about me, the gospel is not about you, the gospel is about Jesus, it's that kind of thing. That the gospel starts with awe. We see Jesus. We see Jesus and we find ourselves in awe. The point of the gospel is not that Jesus is a means to an end. I feel bad. Jesus comes and helps me so that I can feel good. Now that happens. That's not the point. The point isn't I'm really scared of going to hell. And so I'm going to believe in Jesus so that I can go to heaven. That's true. But it's not the point. The point of the gospel is God. John Piper said, God is the gospel. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the end. So I want, to, I want to read to you a really challenging question. It says, the, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Boom. Because... I think lots of times we would answer that yes. Lots of times our sight drops to comfort and to pleasure and to healing and not to Jesus. And we need to be reminded that if heaven existed without Jesus, man, it would be missing. That would not be fulfilling. We would not be content. We would still, at the end of forever, feel empty. The gospel is Jesus. There's this. 
May the church of Jesus Christ say with increasing intensity, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, like Psalm 16, 5, or like Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my my so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My soul doesn't thirst for heaven. My soul doesn't just thirst for a new day. My soul thirsts for God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And he says in Philippians 1, 23, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's about seeing Him and worshiping Him and being invited by Him into what we could never, ever, ever create for ourselves. Awe starts the gospel. We need to fall in love with Jesus. We need to fall in love with Jesus and we need to introduce people to Jesus. Not just to fire insurance. Not just to correction. To Jesus. Those things come. But if we miss Jesus, we miss the whole thing. The popular gospel makes the soul the end. Which means the most important job is pastor. Or missionary. Somebody that's kind of just opening up the word. The gospel, if Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, it opens up meaning so that everything is meaningful, so that everybody's job is meaningful, so that every relationship is meaningful and every conversation is meaningful, not just the ones that look super spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Everything falls under the rule of Jesus. An invitation happens to worship and to discipleship and to mission. And then through obedience, we follow our Lord. Now, when, when the gospel was declared in Jesus' day, when people would go around saying, Caesar is Lord, it demanded a response. That was the gospel, and it demanded a response, right? The response was, call out your allegiance to Caesar or die. Call out your allegiance to Caesar or die. When the gospel goes out and we say, Jesus Christ is Lord, that's the gospel. It demands a response. It demands a response. So in Acts 2, Peter stands up and he calls out. He said, Christ, you crucified him. God raised him. He's alive and he has all authority. And the people who heard it were cut to the heart and they responded. In Acts 2, 36, it says, uh, they're saying, what? What do we need to do? Uh, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, 
Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we confuse the gospel with the response. The response is important. The response is vital. The response is how I enter into that good news. But it exists if I never, if I never answer it at all. The gospel is still the gospel. Our response moves us into worship, and it moves us into discipleship, and it moves us into uh, mission that we would say, I recognize Jesus as Lord. I recognize Jesus as Lord. There's a gospel invitation where in Philippians 2, Paul writes about Jesus. He says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. And taking on the form of a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And then Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the sun, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Caesar is Lord, bow. Philippians 2 says, there is coming a day when every knee bows. Every knee declares Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. It will happen. But we're not left just somewhere out in the future. We have an opportunity right here and right now with our life. When presented with the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord. What will you do? What will you do? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That means you say it. You say it. It comes out of who you are. You're not just going through the motions. But if you would affirm Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he raised him and there's an exchange. You will be saved. That you don't have to stay in your sin. You get Jesus. You get Jesus. You get to be a citizen in his kingdom. You get to be a son or a daughter of the king. And in uh, Acts 2, Peter says, you do that. You repent. You turn around. You change the way you think. You change the way you live. You call your allegiance in Jesus. He says, you get, you get to bow and you get to be raised and you get a present. You get a gift in the Holy Spirit. That he gives that to you. What a king. What an incredible king. Doesn't just demand our worship. But gives us gifts. Gives us an inheritance. Calls us sons and daughters and friends. If you have never bowed before King Jesus... I want to give you that opportunity today. 
Over and over and over through the New Testament, it says we are in our sin. It means we've turned away and we're living a life away from God. And Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not living like it. You may not be living like that's true. And you have an opportunity to repent. You have an opportunity to turn around and to come into life that Jesus' death and resurrection could be swapped out, could be exchanged, that the debt that you owe has been paid by him and you get to receive that, that you would today say, I bow before Jesus. I want my life to come under his rule. I want to follow him. I want to worship him. I want to grow in him. I want to live for him. But I just want to be with him. That can be yours today. And so we'll end there. I'm going to ask you to put your head down. Put your head down. And if you're in this space right now and you've never You've never cried out allegiance to Jesus. In your heart right now, if God is pressing that on you, you don't have to create a fancy answer. You don't have to create anything. Jesus came for you. You can call out your allegiance in your heart and say, Jesus, I recognize I have been living my life for different lords. I have been living my life with different kings, with different pursuits, and I want that to end now. My life is full of sin, and I want to exchange that. I want to turn from that. I recognize you, you, Jesus Christ, as Lord. I submit to you. I bow before you. I give my life to you. And I want to worship you. I want to grow with you. And I want to give because of what you've given. I believe what you did. And I believe what you're doing. Jesus, would you, would you make that exchange for me? Would you transfer my death to yours? Would you give your life for mine? And you said, you said that you would give me a gift. You said that you would give me the Holy Spirit. I want that right now. Would you fill me as I declare my allegiance to you? Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, if your response today says, I need to come into allegiance to him, if the prayer right now was a moment for you, I want you to linger afterward. I want you to talk to somebody because I don't believe that that's just a private thing. Deeply personal, but not held private. Or Paul says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth, if you say it, you have, to, you have to talk about it. You don't keep it secret. If something's going on or if you have questions, come and talk. Come and talk to me. Come and talk 
grab an elder, grab somebody next to you, say, I've got to figure this out. Something, and I don't even know what is going on, but I need to figure this out. Feel free, feel free to come however you are. We're going to move into a time of communion and a time of worship where we declare again, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we worship him as our response. Our Lord, our King, came down and died for us. That's incredible. And exchanges a new life. And in taking communion, we get to say, I'm so thankful for your sacrifice, and I'm so thankful for your life. I will take that, and I will worship because of it. We're going to move right now into a time of worship. Let's pray. Jesus, 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 may we see you. May you be our goal. May you be our desire. May you be what our soul longs for, what our soul pants after. May we find ourselves in you, on our knees, bowing before you, declaring our allegiance to you. And when asked the question, what is the gospel, would you help us without without any sense of anxiety or need for creativity? Would you give us the conviction to simply answer, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.